It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wow, we've got a barn burner today. So if you own a barn, you might want to call the fire department. Because this edition of Fighting for the Faith will definitely burn it down. Why do they call it a barn burner anyway? Anyone know? Alright, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God, in the name of religion, in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, to the Word of God. Because uh, if you run afoul of the Word of God... Uh, it's not that you've, uh, <clears throat> offended Chris Rosebro, have run afoul or run amuck of his personally held opinions. Uh, no, it goes a lot deeper than that because, uh, God has spoken. He's told us what truth is. He's told us what error is. And when you embrace error and call it the truth, um, as Ricky would say, you have some splaining to do. Uh, well, <clears throat> Stay tuned today. We've, I'm glad you've tuned in. This is going to be, like I said, a barn burner of a program. We're going to start off with some news stories. We've got the uh, 10 dumb things that smart Christians believe. This is a news story coming out of the Christian Post. Uh, here's a fun one. A minister compares fight against homosexual clergy to the resistance of the Nazis, and I think he's got a point. And then check this out. The Vatican is, to, is going to stop missionizing Jews. This is an interesting story coming out of the Jerusalem Post. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 11 today in preparation for a bigger discussion tomorrow on Exodus chapter 12 and the penal substitution, which, by the way, is really well taught in, uh, in Exodus chapter 12. So tomorrow, stay tuned for that. I just want to give you a preview of that. And then... The big thing. We're going to be reviewing an appearance by Phyllis Tickle. Uh, she preached the sermon. Well, maybe, I don't know if you can call it the sermon. Um, let's just say that um, she filled in during the normal teaching spot at Mars Hill uh, Church there in Grand Rapids. That's Rob Bell's uh, gig there at uh, in Grand Rapids. And, the, and her, she gave a sermon uh, a, a talk on the feminine attributes of the holy spirit and boy let me tell you uh, this one is a stinker it's really really bad and so as a result of it we will be invoking the emergency gospel sermon that will be made available to everybody via itunes if you uh, subscribe to our podcast and uh, you either get it via xml or via itunes then you will see in today's uh, podcast a list of things, an emergency gospel sermon. And since uh, Phyllis Tickle did a, 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 quote, sermon on the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit, the gospel sermon that I've picked for today uh, was preached by uh, the Reverend Mark Jaza, who is uh, the, campus, uh, the campus preaching pastor over at UCLA in uh, California, one of the LCMS churches there. And uh, he preached a sermon called entitled... The town slut. And so <laughs> I did that as a tit for tat. I, just consider me to be, you know, uh, 
sophomoreish, if you would. But since Phyllis Tickle decided to talk about the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit, I thought I would do uh, make sure we got a good gospel sermon out there, and it's called the Town Slut. So, it, it guaranteed to be provocative. You don't want to miss that. Anyway, so uh, we we've got a lot of ground to cover. We've got a ton of ground to cover. So grab a beverage, and if you if you have a proclivity for grabbing an adult beverage, no problem. Grab an adult beverage. Get your fuzzy bunny slippers on. Get comfortable. And let's sit down and have some fun. It's going to be a good program today. Now, before we get started, uh, we those of you who are in the know, we have another coded message. Uh, so hang on here as we uh, get this out. Attention, F4F listener. Prepare to receive a coded message. Set your Dakota rings to Juliet Echo Sierra Uniform Sierra. Coded message now commencing. Those are actual coded messages, in case you're wondering, um, and they are put together in Morse code. And so those of you who uh, have the talent of being able to listen to and decipher Morse code, those are actual coded messages. And the reason why we're sending those out over the airwaves is real simple. Now that the Department of Homeland Security considers me to be a potential domestic terrorist because of the fact that I am pro-life, in favor of small government, not a big fan of taxes, and I believe in end-time prophecy, you know that makes me a public enemy number one or potential public enemy number one. I figure, why fight it? I might as well play my role here in society. If I'm given the vocation of domestic terrorist, then I had better at least live up to my vocation. And so that includes me sending out secret coded messages to all of my non-thinking minions who obey my every beck and command. So those of you who uh, obey my every beck and command and have your Fighting for the Faith Dakota rings, there you go. All right, moving along, we've got lots of ground to cover today. From the Christian Post, headline reads... Ten, ten dumb things smart Christians believe. Yeah, ten dumb things smart Christians believe. This was written by Lillian Kwan, a Christian Post reporter. She is reporting that uh, many Christians, new and seasoned alike, tend to bank on promises that God never made, says one pastor. I wonder who this pastor is. We, we, I might want to have a conversation with this guy. Sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So when God doesn't come through on those, quote, promises, some are likely to become angry at God. You think? (laughs) Listen, you know, I went to one of those seeker-sensitive churches. You know, the guy was giving away a a 56-inch liquid plasma uh, television screen and Super Bowl tickets and promised me that if I gave Jesus 60 days, that he would make my life better. And things got worse. Sound familiar? Anyway... Anyway, and quote that to me is as a pastor over my uh, over all my years is always one of the saddest things. Said Larry Osborne, teaching pastor at no- North Coast Church in Vista, California. 
Osborne, whose church draws over 7,000 people, is hoping to spare a lot of Jesus followers from that anger. He's also hoping Christians will peruse Scripture more. Peruse it? How about read it? Well, what'd you do for your daily devotions? Well, you know, I sat down and I did the Lectio Divina for about 30 minutes. Never really quite could figure that thing out. But so then I decided I'd just go ahead and, you know, peruse the scriptures a little bit. Wow, perusing. That's a, never heard of perusing before. Yeah, you know, I don't actually want to read it. That just, that's ridiculous. I mean, who whoever heard of reading the Bible? But i uh, glad to hear that... Um, Pastor Osborne here is is hoping that Christians or Christ followers, as he call them, will peruse the Scripture more and align themselves with what what God really says, rather than the word on the street. So he spelled out some of the dumb things that smart Christians believe tend to be specific in a new book. He calls those dumb things spiritual urban legends. A, a belief or story or assumption or truism that gets passed along as if it were fact, even in Sunday school or Bible class. What happens is somebody passes out a truism, and that sounds good, and, we've, and we just heard it so many times that we don't bother to check it out. Uh, yeah. Osborne explains that to the Christian Post, and that's the source of most of these urban legends. Uh, they're true, partially uh, but they're not true completely. One of the partial truths many Christians fall victim to is the belief that living God's way will bring good fortune. Yep. <laughs> yep. Quote, the Bible makes no such promise. Osborne writes in 10 Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. Yeah, it, it, you know what, though? Um, you got a problem there, Pastor Osborne. And that is, is that uh, last weekend I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time in Joel Osteen's new Bible Oh boy. <laughs> um and somebody who was reading uh Joel Osteen's new Bible um would probably differ with you and say, "Well, it's right here in the notes. It says that God's promised me." Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. I'm going to have to write an article about it because the stuff the notes the, Joel Osteen's Bible, I I'm absolutely convinced that when I'm done reviewing it, my review will probably start off something like this. This is the first Bible that I've ever encountered that if you actually read the notes, you'll go to hell. Yeah, so that's how bad the Osteen Bible is. Okay, so, all right, so okay, so quote: "The Bible makes no such promise." Osborne writes in Ten Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. The 57-year-old pastor recalls one moment when a church attendee named Tim waited in line to talk to him after a weekend worship service, and as soon as I said, "Hey, what's up?" he let loose. Osborne writes, "Bleep your bleeping God!" He exclaimed, "I'm done. Your Jesus hasn't done me a bit of good. I've tried to clean up my act. I've I've tried your your tithing thing. It doesn't work. I just lost my job. My wife needs surgery, and now I don't have any insurance. Where is your bleeping God when we need him?" <laughs> right. See, that's the problem with these seeker guys. They are pitching God as if he's, he's, uh, what did I say the other day? Like he's sham. Wow. It's Jesus. Now get your Jesus. Now he'll make your life better. He'll, he'll make the sky bluer. He'll make things smell better. He'll make your food taste even better than before. You'll have a more satisfying career, more intimacy at home in the bed. Know what I mean? And your kids will be even better behaved. Yeah. Get your Jesus. Now. 
After a few more expletives, he finally turned and stormed out and I never saw him again. Yeah, no kidding. He's probably an atheist and has a blog site and writes about how much he hates Christians. Anyway, Osborne notes that it wasn't a series of tough breaks or unfortunate events that caused Tim's tirade. Rather, it was a set of unfounded and unrealistic expectations about what it means to follow God and what should happen when we venture to do so. That set him off. And where do you think he, Tim got those ideas from, by the way? Oh, I know. Bad preaching. So he heard it in church. Tim's case isn't unique. Many Christians expect things to work out. Uh, when living God's way, Osborne says, they all figured that a little bit of God might bring a little bit of luck. So why not rub the bottle <laughs> and see if a genie pops out? He writes, holding such a belief, however, could prove to be spiritually dangerous. Moreover, it results in a lot of pretenders or dabblers who try to play by the rules of Christianity, but not really believe in what they're abiding. Uh-huh. When we assume or imply or promise that God is supposed to bring us good luck and lots of success, we're setting up for deep disappointment and spiritual cynicism, he writes. Uh, you know, Osborne, Pastor Osborne, I completely agree with you. Could you do me a favor and see if you can talk some sense into these seeker-driven guys and tell them to stop preaching about stress relief and uh, better intimacy and all that garbage and tell them to get back to just preaching the word instead of creating and passing along these urban myths hang on, hang on a second here <clears throat> sorry I, I, I get all worked up every now and then <clears throat> uh, it says when we assume or imply or promise that god is supposed to bring us good luck and lots of success we're set up for deep disappointment and spiritual cynicism he writes even worse we risk turning the king of kings into little more than a good luck charm i agree osborne also warns that those who introduce Christ to others and testify of only the, quote, abundant Christian life while downplaying the harder teachings of Jesus set the stage for disillusionment when things go awry. Uh, this, hey, you know, this, I've been saying this for a while now at this microphone. Following Christ can be tough, and having faith isn't always going to fix everything. It's another spiritual urban le legend that faith can fix anything, and that, an, and that another one that can lead to an angry outburst or a spiritual meltdown. As a pastor, this is one of the most common urban legends Osborne has encountered. Countered. Many Christians believe writing, uh, ridding themselves of doubts or having clear positive thinking, which is how many define faith, will lead to their desired outcomes, such as physical healing. But having faith doesn't always lead to victory, at least not in the earthly sense. While the Bible famously tells of kingdoms won, lions muzzled, flames quenched, weaknesses turned to strengths, enemies routed, and the dead raised, it also speaks of people of faith who were tortured, jeered, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, sawed in two, and put to death by the sword. You're right. Yeah, and they all lived by faith, yet their faith didn't fix anything, Osborne points out. <laughs> yeah, finally, somebody willing to speak the truth here. Anyway, what faith does promise, however, is forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Right on! Faith is not an impenetrable shield that protects us from life's hardships and trials. It's not a magic potion that removes every mess. Osborne writes in his book, it's designed to guide us on a path called righteousness. Uh, all right. Faith, Osborne says, is trusting enough to obey. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, he's, he's confusing law and gospel there. That's why I'm kind of getting queasy. <clears throat> but I like what he's saying otherwise. <clears throat> Hang on a second. I've got to get the hairball out of my mouth. <laughs> 
Yeah. <clears throat> All right. The other eight spiritual urban legends he lists are forgiving means forgetting. A godly home guarantees godly kids. God has a blueprint for my life. That one's called God has a purpose for my life. That's a purpose-driven myth. Christians shouldn't uh, judge uh, everything happens for a reason. Let your conscience be your guide. A valley means a wrong turn, and dead people uh, and dead people go to a better place. <laughs> well, it sounds like he's right on the right. The common thread through all of them, Osborne said, is the disillusionment that comes when we ban- when we bank on the promises of God that actually are never made. Right on. All right, so. I think it'd be worth a read, but it does sound like he confuses law and gospel. But glad to see that the Christian Post is, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are reading the Christian Post going, I don't know, that Osborne guy sure does, I don't think that sounds biblical to me. That's not the God I believe in. Quick note here. Um, uh, The woman who would have discovered the ultimate cure for cancer was actually murdered today. Uh, Yeah, I know this is a sad story. just came across the lines here. Jane Doe, a woman who was uniquely gifted by God with the perfect combination of intelligence, tenacity, and the pure doggedness necessary to do whatever it takes to excel in science in order to conquer cancer, was murdered this morning when her mother, a 21-year-old college student who didn't want her life inconvenienced by a baby, aborted her. Yeah, Jane's murder is a major blow to humanity, and her death will set the world of medicine uh, medical science back 50 years because Jane will not be present to make her groundbreaking discovery that would have led to a simple a simple cancer vaccine that would have eradicated cancer once and for all. Jane's murder means that hundreds of millions of people around the globe will now needlessly suffer and die from cancer for many, many, many years to come. Yeah, that's definitely a setback. Too bad she was aborted. I mean, she literally would have made a difference in the world. All right. Moving along here. All right, this is a good story. Uh, Minister, (laughs) yeah, this is from the Telegraph in the UK. Minister compares fight against homosexual clergy to resistance of the Nazis. This guy's got a point. Uh, A minister in the Church of Scotland, Reverend Ian Watson, has compared an increasingly bitter campaign against homosexual clergy to the war against the Nazis. Now, people are sitting there. Did he really say that? Does this guy's comparing just homosexual clergy? These are guys who who love guys and 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 it's just you're just being judgmental and you just don't have an expanded view of love and God's doing a new thing. No, he's not. And this guy's right. We continue. This is by Alistair Jameson from The Telegraph in the UK uh, from May 13th, 2009. The preacher gave a sermon condemning homosexual lifestyles, claiming any acceptance of them by the church would turn the grace of God into a license for immorality. Yep. His comments will widen divisions within the Kirk over the appointment of an openly gay minister to a parish a church last year. The row threatens to overshadow next week's annual general assembly, which is due to debate a petition signed by one third of ministers calling for a ban on homosexuals in the pulpit. Uh, Reverend Kenneth McKenzie, the minister at Crathy Kirk near uh, Balmoral, which is attended by the queen has warned a schism. A schism would occur if his appointment was confirmed quote, Life in the church will never be the same again, and my fear is that a sizable minority of the clergy and perhaps a majority of its people may consider leaving the church, causing a rift felt in every parish. He said the row is similar to that in the Anglican church about the ordination of homosexuals between conservatives who cite Bible texts 
that condemn homosexuality and liberals who argue many traditional teachings in the Bible are no longer observed literally. Yeah, that's the way you get rid of them. You know, when God said that it was an abomination when a guy sleeps with another guy, he didn't really mean it. We just need to understand it culturally. And see if you if you can just understand that culturally back then there were these these there were temple male shrine prostitutes and see we don't have those today and so I mean obviously prostitution is bad and so what God was really condemning culturally was the idea of you know somehow setting up you know it, it, it the abuse of homosexuality in such a way but god really is doing a new thing and and that means that you know a guy who loves a dude it, you know it's that i mean god would never condemn such you know such a love affair as that as long as it stays monogamous <laughs> that's how the reasoning goes <clears throat> reverend watson has posted on his blog a sermon he delivered at uh, Kirk Muir Hill Church in Lanark, in which he mentioned the failure of the French army to stand up to the Nazi annexation of the Rhineland in 1938. Yep. Quote, Hitler guessed correctly that the French had no stomach for a fight. Funny enough, they still don't. Yeah. Um, you know, by the way, you know, French tanks, uh, they, they have six gears. Five of them are reverse and only one of them is forward. Anyway, if only they had, then the tragedy of a Second World War might have been avoided. Well, it definitely would have been different. Reverend Watson is a prominent opponent of Scott Rennie, a divorced father of one who now lives with his partner, David, and has the support of his Aberdeen Presbytery. Uh, the motion at next week's General Assembly urges the Kirk not to train, ordain, admit, readmit, induct, or introduce any to, to any ministry of the church anyone involved in a sexual relationship outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Wonder why? Could it be that the Bible says something about this? I think it does. In fact, you don't we, listen to this. Uh, from Leviticus chapter 18, we read starting at verse 1. Why? Because context is always really important. It's in fact, when you read the whole context of Leviticus 18, um it kind of leaves no room for any. Well, let's continue. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall do. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God." You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does not, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you, by the way, I um, just want to let you all know that Leviticus chapter 18, um, little ears, children, um, uh, you may, in fact, um, just cover them right now or have them go into the other room and play with their racetrack or their Barbie dolls, depending, and uh, come back in about you know, six, seven minutes. I continue. None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your, uh, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, or for their nakedness, it's your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, daughter, brought up in your family, 
father's family, since she is your sister, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. Now, point just point of fact here. Um, God is making it pretty clear that it's not just enough uh, that marriage is between one man and one woman. There's actually prohibitions as to which men and which women can get together in a marriage relationship. There are certain things that are forbidden, shall we say, such as incestuous relationships or adultery with uh, your, with, you know, other people's husbands and wives. By the way, my question is if, I mean, if, you know, couldn't we make the argument, you know, that why, why are there no groups out there saying, you know, what we really need is we need pastors out there who are, uh, we need to lobby in order to have ordained ministers out there who are actively uh, committing adultery with uh, somebody else's wife. They're in love, right? I mean, that's a man, that's a man woman relationship. They're, that's not controversial, is it? How come there's no one out there debating whether or not we should ordain adulterous, uh, currently adulterous clergy? Hmm. Yeah, I, that's, that's what I thought, too. All right, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman uh, and of her daughter. You shall not take her daughter's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It's a depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And you shall not lie sexually with your brother's wife and so make yourself unclean with her you shall not give any of your children to offer them to molech and so profane the name of your god i am the lord you shall not lie with a uh, male as you as with a woman that is an abomination uh-huh let me read that again uh, leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 you shall not lie with a male as with a woman it's an abomination by the way culturally there nothing mentioned about prostitutes or male shrine prostitutes pretty clear there god's thoughts on uh <clears throat> homosexuality uh the it's an abomination now by the way listen to this uh, the chapter continues verse 24 do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for by all of these the nations i am driving out before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among your people, uh, from their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. Uh, the moral of the story here is that homosexuality is an abomination, and having a an unrepentant gay clergyman, I just have a hard time thinking 
that God is up there going, you know, that was an abomination back in the Old Testament days. I've really cooled off now. You know, I found that, you know, if I just don't be so judgmental and keep talking about the sin thing, that I'm act, my, my quality of life is much better. I don't think so at all. God is holy and he doesn't change his mind. What he considered an abomination then, he considers an abomination now. And you cannot have a clergyman who is supposed to be tasked with the job of shepherding God's sheep engaged in unrepentant sexual perversion that God says is an abomination. This pastor there in Scotland is absolutely right. And he's absolutely, I hope they are successful. We need to pray for these people these this these churches over in the uk over in scotland that they're able to resist the evil that is coming into their churches and we also pray for these homosexual ministers if you can call it that who think that it's okay what they're doing pray that god would open their eyes show them their sin their wickedness their depravity and their abomination drive them to their knees in repentance and despair because of their wicked sinfulness so that they would then receive a full pardon and mercy from jesus christ who died for even the sins we just read in leviticus chapter 18 All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to continue with the news. We're going to be looking at a news story coming out of the Jerusalem Post. The Vatican is apparently going to stop missionizing Jews. Oh, boy. And uh, and then let's see here. And then as – well, we're going to get to Exodus 11, and then we're going to get to our review of Phyllis Tickle's sermon. I don't don't know if that's the right word, but uh, her appearance, her pep talk – um, at uh, Rob Bell's church in Grand Rapids on the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's, it'll prove to be all kinds of fun, so uh, you don't want to miss it. If you'd like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, you can do that. My name there is Chris Roseborough, or you can follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around. 
see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. They don't know they're dead in their sins. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, you can support us a few ways, a couple of ways, two to be exact. You can visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow donation buttons. And that allows you to make a secure online gift to Fighting for the Faith via PayPal there. And uh, the other way to do it is to make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, this... Well, I got to be careful where I want to classify this, so I just consider this to be stupid. But we'll back it up biblically before we uh, <clears throat> before we sound like we're being too judgmental. <clears throat> Not that I suffer from judging anything. Everyone knows that I have no opinions about nothing, no how. Um, from the Jerusalem Post, we read: Vatican to stop missionizing Jews. Vatican to stop missionizing Jews. Uh, the story reads, after meeting the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Muhammad Ahmed Hussein, and praying at the Western Wall on Tuesday, Pope Benedict XVI arrived for a historic meeting with the chief rabbis at Hechal Shlomo next to the capital's great synagogue and agreed that the Catholic Church will cease all missionary activity among Jews. Let me read that last part of that sentence again. The Catholic Church will now cease all missionary activity among Jews. In his welcoming address, Chief 
Ash Kenazi, Rabbi Yana Metzger, thanked the Pope for his announcement, calling it, quote, a historic agreement and for us an immensely important message. Metzger also congratulated the Pope on his arrival to our holy land, the land to which we prayed to return during 2,000 years of exile. And with God's help, our meeting today is taking place in the land of Israel, in our city of Jerusalem, the eternal capital of the Jewish people. Yeah, so basically, see if I have this straight here. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI, who is supposed to be the, quote, successor uh, to the office of Pope, which goes all the way, as they trace it, back to Peter, Peter being, that would be the Apostle Peter, being the first pope, has now abdicated his responsibility as a Christian and has agreed that the Catholic Church will now cease all missionary activity among Jews. <sighs> you know, I, you can't, I wish this was a comedy bit, but it's not. Um, let me read to you Acts chapter 5. We'll just do a little comparative work here between Pope Benedict XVI, who's supposedly the successor to Peter, and uh, and and Peter himself, and just just do a little bit of comparative work here. Acts chapter five, starting at verse twelve. Don't worry about context because we're actually reading this entire segment, so this is all context. We read now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. This is the early church, right? I mean, shortly after Christ has ascended, shortly after uh, the day of Pentecost. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Uh, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Okay, sounds like things are going well for the early Christian church. And now you can hear the dramatic music. Dun, dun, dun. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is of the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison so that they returned and reported, uh, well, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this could come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Pause for a second here. Um, let Let me see here. Peter, the, quote, first pope, said that, you know, when he was told not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus, said, we must obey God rather than men. Let me see here. Pope Benedict XVI has agreed that the Catholic Church will cease all missionary activity among Jews. Okay, going back to the Bible. Peter's saying, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Pope Benedict XVI has agreed that the Catholic Church will cease all missionary activity to the Jews. Okay. God exalts him at the right hand. All right. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm seeing a huge disconnect here. Are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing or am I just being overly critical? I mean, Peter, the, the supposedly the first Pope, uh, was of such a strong conviction that he had to obey God rather than men. And that he was to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to Israel, Jews, um, that uh, he was willing to go to prison and, and basically stand up to the Jewish authorities. And here you have Pope Benedict Sixteenth agreeing that the Catholic Church will cease all missionary activity among the Jews. All right, let me continue reading the biblical story. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Apparently, the, uh, Peter's refusal to stop proselytizing Jews back in the early Christian church, Peter being, of course, the first pope, apparently this wasn't a very politically correct move, and it actually upset people. Uh, let me see. Um, whereas Pope Benedict XVI's announcement that he's going to uh, cease all missionary activity among the Jews, the Jews, uh, it, it, we read, in his welcoming address, uh, Chief Ash Ken Azi, Rabbi Yana Metzger, thanked the Pope for this announcement, calling it a historic agreement. Whereas the first Pope, Peter, when he announced that he had to obey God rather than men, uh, the Jewish leaders, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Anyone noticing just a difference uh, of uh, reaction here? Uh, Maybe it's me. All right, let me see. But the but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the men, uh, people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, "Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudius rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. And then he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing." After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in those days. The census drew away some people after him, but he too perished, and they all, all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan, uh, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. 
But it's uh, if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and then charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. And when they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Let me read that again. So then they, that would be Peter and the other, uh, Peter and whoever else was, they were left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching uh, Jesus as the Christ. That would be among Jews. Man, this is ridiculous. So apparently now the Pope, uh, who is the successor of Peter, has completely abdicated his responsibility to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. And in the name of political expediency, in the name of political correctness, has made an announcement that has made the Jewish leaders oh so happy. We are not going to missionize Jews any longer. Well, I've got news for you. Um, I'm not going to abide by that. (laughs) In fact, we're listened to. Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, we have a pretty good listenership in Israel. And I, for those of you listening in Israel, let me say this. We are going to continue to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And if we have opportunity to purposely missionize Jews with this message that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and that he is calling Jews to repentance and the, and the reception of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, we're going to continue doing that. If the Pope won't do his job, we'll do his job for him, even though I'm not a Pope. Anyway, man, I tell you, the whole world has just gone absolutely bonkers crazy. It just, everything is 180 degrees out of phase and 100% backwards. How is it anybody who claims to be the successor to Peter isn't even aware of what Acts chapter 5 says? And, and, oh, man, just, (laughs) sorry, if I don't start humming, I might start cussing. Not that I have a cussing problem. You know, I should I should take some cussing lessons from Driscoll. Man, that guy can... Never mind. <laughs> All right, moving along here to our next segment. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. We are up to Exodus chapter 11. And the thing I'm really looking forward to is tomorrow we're going to be doing Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, believe it or not, teaches... It's one of the underpinning... Uh, scripture passages that teaches penal substitution and you say really yes it does and i'm going to prove it tomorrow so you don't want to miss it now as we've been working our way through exodus and other we worked our way through mark we worked our way through we're now working our way through exodus keep this in mind the whole purpose for this familiarize you with god's word and his teaching and you'll notice something here and that is is that i'm not working through small segments, you know, piecemeal. Uh, yesterday I was listening, listening to John Piper's lecture. And as much as I like Piper there, I, I, there's some disagreements I have with him. I think he's a little heavy on the law, but he was spot on yesterday. I was a little surprised to hear that he spent eight years working, you know, preaching on the book of Romans. Um, listen, okay. If you're going to take that long to work through a biblical text, save it for Sunday school. Um, and, in the in the regular church service, give people large pieces of scripture, 
large pieces, not don't piecemeal these things. You know, there's nothing worse than sitting through a, a sermon series on like the Sermon on the Mount and the, the they open up the beatitudes and you and you literally spend 13 weeks working through the first 8 verses on the sermon on the mount i mean ay 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 come on did jesus preach that way he preached the whole thing in one setting i i think we need to get back to the you know, one of the I, remember context 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 i i'm serious um I, I wonder if it would just be revolutionizing if a pastor, rather than getting up and preaching, you know, uh, it, well, let's say piecemealing a, a verse here and a verse there, got up in one Sunday, the sermon for today, we're going to read Paul's letter to the Galatians and read all six chapters. And that was the whole message, the whole thing. And then the next week read Colossians and then the next week read Philippians and the next read, we'll just read Ephesians. Very little commentary, you know, commentary only necessary as far as maybe, you know, helping people understand some of the stuff that's locked up in it. Uh, but r- the entire sermon itself covered the whole book. I know that just, uh, I, maybe I'm just a radical. That's, you know, but you know what? I think more is better when it comes to the Bible, just something I've noticed, more is better. And the more you cover, the more ground you cover, the more familiar you are with the way God thinks, the way God, uh, what God demands, what it is that, you know, what sin is. And you really get the, the whole grand picture. And then when you're done with it, go back through it again. You know, I'm, I, and here's the other thing. As, as I'm all in favor of these Bible in a year series things. That they're decent things to be doing. Uh, believe it or not, though, you can do the entire Bible in like three months. It's not hard. <laughs> I, I, you could do the entire Bible in three, four months if you're just reading 20, 30 minutes a day. I know. I know. <sighs> I'm a radical. Okay. <laughs> Moving along. Exodus chapter 11. This sets us up for Exodus chapter 12. We read, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. I'm going to point something out here. I've heard prosperity preachers use this passage to somehow say that we can, you know, that God wants us to um, exploit the world of their riches. It's ridiculous. Okay. This was a one-time thing here. That the people of Egypt, God had favorably disposed the people of Egypt to the people of Israel. And you think about it this way. There's a lot of people in the land of Egypt uh, who were the ones who were suffering as a result of Pharaoh's hard heart and the plagues that were coming along. Uh, they they knew they knew what was going down, and they knew that Egypt was completely decimated. And when it came to the showdown between the two gods, between Yahweh and, well, the so-called God-man Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was coming out on the losing end. They they could keep score. (laughs) 
It was uh, <clears throat> Yahweh 9, uh, Pharaoh 0. It was a wipeout, all right? Pharaoh didn't stand a chance. And so in a real way, the Egyptians are humbled. The Egyptians are driven to recognize that the God of Israel is the true God. All right, so God here says that he's going to favorably dispose the, the Egyptians uh, towards the, uh, the Israelites. Again, this is not some normative thing that some, there's some hidden principle or application here that, uh, that you know, if, if you have enough faith, then people in the world are going to hand over the keys to their Mercedes Benz to you because you're a Christian. I've heard sermons to this effect, and it, nothing could be further from the truth. Anyway, we continue. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So now we've got the, this is, sets the ground for the final plague the killing the death of the firstborn and god says here he's going to make a distinction between egypt and between israel and without giving away the whole thing that distinction is going to be based upon a condition the condition is the shed blood of a spotless lamb and we're going to find out tomorrow how Jesus, it is said of Jesus, that he is our Passover lamb. The, the big plague here is what's called the Passover. The angel of death passes over the house of the Israelites who have the shed blood of a spotless lamb over their doorpost. In the same way, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb and death is and judgment and God's wrath passes over us on the last day because we are covered by the blood of our spotless Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Good stuff coming up tomorrow. You don't want to miss it. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back in hour number two, we're going to be reviewing Phyllis Tickle's um, sermon lecture whatever during the teaching spot at rob bell's mars hill church up in grand rapids on the feminine attributes of the holy spirit 
And uh, yeah, this is not good stuff. This is yeah. This this will call for an emergency gospel sermon in order to flush your ears out after hearing it because it is that bad. So you don't want to miss it. <laughs> you don't want to miss it. It's going to be all kinds of mm, fun. All right, we're we're. If you would like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. My name there is Chris Roseborough. Or if you'd like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets via Twitter, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Straight ahead here at Fighting for the Faith. Put on your thinking caps. All right, we're going to be reviewing a, um, well, sermon. I don't know what it was. <clears throat> at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, the uh, speaker is a gal by the name of Phyllis Tickle. She's an older gal. And she is one of the major voices of the so-called emergence movement. Let's just say that she's really, really good friends with Brian McLaren, Peter Rollins, Doug Paget, Tony Jones. Uh, we've reviewed some of her stuff here in the past. She is a firm believer that just about every 500 years, the Christian church has a rummage sale and changes things up. And uh, we're at one of those major pinnacle 500-year events things. Now, this woman, I'm going to say this, she's smart. She's a good communicator. 
What you're going to hear is seductive. And the reason why it's seductive is because it's presented academically and with a little bit of passion. But she couldn't be further off from the truth, and I'll help you pick that apart. So without any further ado, here is uh, Phyllis Tickle at Mars Hill Bible Church. Uh, the, the name of her presentation is A Treasure We Don't Understand, talking about the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit. This is the cup of salvation. Hang on a second here. Good morning, Marcel. I can't even begin to tell you how lovely it is to be back here. Uh, I, I do a lot of talking around the country and, and get to be with a lot of parishes and congregations and... I don't think, truth, honestly, this is not patronizing, this is truth. I don't think any has ever moved me uh, the way you did 18 months ago or stayed as dear to my heart. I have some friends among you. I must tell you, there's a few shills out there um, uh, whom I play, but who are good friends and whose friendship I've treasured over the years. But it, it's so wonderful to be in a vibrant worshiping community like you are. Uh, and so may God bless you. And thank you for letting me come back. Uh, I, I'm delighted to be here. I'm back here because you're talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, which in and of itself is a fairly scary thing to do. I don't know whether you know that or yet or not, but it's a scary thing to do. Um, it's a difficult subject, and I am back at the invitation of your clergy because we're getting ready in your series to talk about the feminine side of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Rob and Matt and, and your clergy asked if I would come do that. The, the, they said that the argument for that was that the, the feminine part of the Holy Spirit should be talked about uh, by a woman instead of a man. And I have to tell you, I love churches who have clergy where the gentlemen understand where they're way over their limit, you know. Uh, uh, she jokes, but there's a problem here. Uh, notice that this is a woman who's uh, speaking at a church. How many of the apostles of Jesus were women? One of the uh, major qualifications for a pastor is that he be the husband of but one wife. Does Phyllis fill that spot? I don't think so. She shouldn't be up there to begin with. That's one strike. Here comes some more. So I thought it was just hooray for you guys. You're absolutely, you go girl, absolutely. You know, after I got over that piece, I have seven children. You cannot be an honest feminist and have seven children, but I try, you know. Uh, there's a certain credibility lapse in there, you know. I never saw a guy that I didn't think was worth looking at at least twice, just to be sure. Um, you know, which is how you get seven kids. Uh, that and being careless. My problem is there. They're all but the same daddy, and that takes a whirl of imagination. But Spoken by an honest feminist, as she calls herself. None of which has anything to do with the Holy Spirit, all right? You all calm down. <laughs> now, I, 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 after I got over that feminist kick, 
I realized uh, also that probably the reason for your invitation has to do with where the bulk of my work has been for the last four or five years at least. The bulk of my work has, and this by the way is going to be a teaching, uh, uh, you know, those of you who haven't, who didn't get to sleep late enough this morning, feel free to go ahead because it's a teaching, it's not going to be a sermon. Um, and, and the bulk of my... All right, so she's only filling the spot where the, nor- the sermon would normally be preached, but it's not a sermon, it's a teaching. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Strike two. My work has been in talking about the fact that about every 500 years, Christianity has gone through a mighty upheaval and greatly changed itself. Things have just gone like that. And we're going through one of those right now. The last one was 500 years ago, and we called it the Great Reformation. This one's called the Great Emergence, and I spoke about that 18 months ago when I was here, uh, and it's the area of my study. The one before that was in the 11th century, 1054, and it was the Great Schism, and the one before that was in the 6th century, and it was the Great Decline and Fall, and the one before that was in the change of the era, from before the Common Era to the Common Era, uh, and it's called the Great Transformation. Uh, We're hung on greats. Nonetheless, Um, uh, as I have dealt with that one of the things one has to face is that the understanding I don't want to say the doctrine but the understanding the nature of our engagement as believers with the Holy Spirit has changed markedly with each of those changes and for us as we enter the great emergence as we are in the great emergence uh, that is especially true. And uh, I said at 9 o'clock, and I will say again, please hear what I'm about to say carefully. I, I don't mind being criticized. Well, I do, but I, I don't mind too much being criticized for what I, I, I really said. But I just hate, like everything, being criticized for what I didn't say because you didn't listen right. If- uh, well, apparently, if I judge her the wrong, wrong way, then I'm not listening right. So I'm, hang on, let me make sure my headphones are on right. Hang on. Let's see, right, left, right, left. Okay, okay, I've got my headphones on right so that I can hear her correctly, so that I'm listening properly. Uh, By the way, in a previous episode of Fighting for the Faith, uh, we talked about this so-called 500-year bake sale or rummage sale that she talks about on this YouTube video. I'll put a link up to that over at Fighting for the Faith, along with this edition there. So if you want to... Hear what I said previously. We'll put the link up to the past edition so that you can get to it quickly. Because I pretty much rather simply tore that apart, that whole position of hers. Two shreds in uh, just a couple minutes. Not hard to do if you know your Christian history. We continue. If I'm going to offend you, I want to know it beforehand so I can anticipate with pleasure uh, what's going to happen. (laughs) But, but... (laughs) The honest, the, the, the honest truth of the thing is that the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years was not a matter of public conversation. It was not a matter of um, active engagement always. That is to say that why, and I didn't say the Holy Spirit wasn't active. I didn't say that. Holy Spirit absolutely was active. But it did not become a thing that you talked about at the grocery store or that you, com- you computed around or that you thought of that much until a thing called Azusa Street happened in 1906. Yes. Oh, thank God. Some of you are saying yes. Okay. Bless you, my brethren. Continue to say yes. Uh- All right. So at this point, she's heading off with a thesis. Um, she's leading off with a thesis that, uh, that apparently we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit much until that thing called Azusa Street. That would be the... 
the so-called great outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Azusa Street, the Azusa Street revival, which kicked off the American, uh, well, not the American only, but the whole Pentecostal movement as we know it. Um, I've got some questions as to whether or not that was even a valid move of the Holy Spirit, considering the doctrines that were coming out of the Azusa Street revival. We continue. I'm from the South, and, you know, every once when when you get going, somebody will say, you go, sister, and I hate coming North because nobody does that. I don't know what's wrong with you all, but anyway, uh, or, or tell it like it is, brother. Uh, the truth of it is, when Azusa Street happened, when Azusa Street happened, Pentecostalism was born into the post-Pentecostal Christian tradition. That is to say, when Pentecostalism came into the Western experience again, the Holy Spirit became the third part of the Trinity about which we need to know more and we realize we don't know enough. We began to actively engage the Holy Spirit in a way that we had not done. Now, In a way that was not biblical, in a way that it contradicted the clear teachings of uh, the Apostles. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians regarding the order order in worship and the abuses of the Holy Spirit. So I would say that until Azusa Street, we didn't see the Corinthian abuse of the Holy Spirit again in the church, if you know, proper until Azusa Street. And at that point, people threw out what the Bible says regarding the proper use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and began abusing him wholesale again. But then again, um, Phyllis, just a simple question. Uh, the whole Azusa Street Revival thing, um, what book of the Bible is that found in? But notice that she's citing, she's giving us a history lesson filtered through her interpretation, her great emergence interpretation. And she's what she's doing is she's, she's doing a little smorgasbord Christian history. She's going down the aisle of Christian history and she's saying, you know, I like a little bit of that. I'll, I'll add that into my cart. And let's see, ooh, you know, a little bit of mysticism. I'll throw that in here. And a little bit of, you know, so what she's doing, she's doing, she's basically hunting and pecking and cherry-picking particular things uh, that are of interest to her uh, from Christian history, and then citing that as if it somehow tells us anything authoritative about what God's doing. But if you really want to know anything authoritative about what God is doing, you need to find that in the Scriptures. But then again, the Great Emergence throws out the doctrine of sola scriptura because it's just way too constricting, way too limiting. It, it, it Oh, no, no, God's up to something new. <clears throat> Just as an aside, lest, lest we feel bad about this, let me tell you that, that the mystics of the Middle Ages, particularly Joachim of Fiorne, is... The, the mystics of the Middle Ages, particularly Joachim of Fiorne, is he a biblical author, Phyllis? Is, was he one of the Old Testament prophets, Mystical? No. You're going to quote a medieval mystic as if anything he says is somehow binding or true regarding the grand... Oh, hang on a second. Listen to the quote. The one 
who most clearly said in, in a moment of mysticism, and he taught thereafter, that there were three ages to Christian history, or to creation's history, if you will. The first 2,000 years were the years of God the Father, and those were the years from the beginning of time to the Great Transformation. The next 2,000 years would be the years of God the Son. And, said Joachim, those years began with the crucifixion, and they will go to approximately 2,000. And then we will enter the last 2,000 years in which those will be the years of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at Azusa Street and don't hear what Joachim had foreseen in a mystic experience... So Joachim had a mystic experience and somehow predicted around the year 2000... By the way, he was off. Azusa Street, as I understood it, was early in the 20th century. Hang on a second here. We're going to look this up on Google. Hang on. Um... Uh, Zusa Street Revival. Doing a little Google work here. By the way, uh, Azusa. Yeah, I, my parents actually lived near Azusa at one point. And uh, Azusa stands for A to Z in the USA. Everything from A to Z in the USA. Azusa Street Revival took place on April 14th, 1906. Oh, I'm sorry, Phyllis. Uh, Joachim, um, in his mystical experience, missed it by a hundred years. But then again, maybe I'm just being too modern. Uh, why is it that Joachim is somehow quoted in this mystical experience? How do we know that he just the mystical experience would have gone away if he'd been able to level his blood sugars out with a good microwave burrito? Notice the Mexican food allusion there, too, by the way. Man, I could use some really good Mexican food. They don't have that really out here. Um, never mind. I'm off topic. So, Joachim's mystical experience is somehow telling us anything again? Really? So, if we believe this, uh, first of all, he missed it by a hundred years. Um, but then again, um, you know, maybe he was just, you know, he was roughing it. You know, year 2000, give or take a hundred. And then from then, we've got a whole 2,000 more years of history. And how convenient that this mystical monk explained to us that, that, uh, that all of the history of the world can be divided up into the history, the 2,000 years that we understood the Father, the 2,000 years that we understood the Son, and now the 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, funny enough, um, uh, Phyllis, the funny thing is is that we're called as a Christian church to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given for the edification of the church, those who are called out, ecclesia, and uh, those who are called out through the preaching of the gospel, given faith, trust in Christ, repented of their sins. Uh, they make up the body of Christ, so to speak. And the gifts of the Spirit are given in order to build up and edify the church. That's what the Bible teaches. And so um, the Christian era, we've always had the Holy Spirit because anybody who was truly a Christian was given gifts by the Spirit for the edification of the church through all time. And the, really, if you look at the Holy Spirit's role in history, uh, role in the Christian church, it's always pointing people to Christ. Jesus. Pointing people to Jesus. I don't think the church ever gets to move. Well, never mind. You have to, you know, you, you have to think about. He he saw something and he told us something, and then he said, "No, I don't have." He he saw something, all right. 
and he told us something all right, but I don't believe Joachim was telling us anything that came actually from God, the Holy Spirit. After that, by 4,000 of the common era, there would be a 1,000 years of dispensation. Um, and, and so be it. Whether that will be true or not, I don't know. But we have a heritage for understanding. Then why quote him? That we are beginning another 2,000 years in which, if you will, the, the part of the Trinity that we are asked to most intimately know uh, is the Holy Spirit. Wrong. Again. What did Paul say? I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. Phyllis, you know, you're taking our eyes off of Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Uh, Jesus hasn't decided to go on vacation. It's not like he's vacationing in Tahiti and say, you know what, uh, HHS, you go ahead and take over now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. Sorry, no mystical monk is going to convince me of that. And so I think, I hope anyway, that's part of the reason I'm here. Uh, and if we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and her, the Holy Spirit's feminine side, we have to go way back. We have to go back to the book of Genesis. And Bob, if you'll put up a slide, I've got, I can't read backwards. I never learned to read backwards. So, when... Thankfully, uh, Phyllis has uh, provided us with uh, copies of her slide presentation. So I'm able to, as the, <clears throat> as the, radio program host to uh, peruse and follow along using the slides that she gave there at Mars Hill Bible Church. Now, this is the seductive part, okay? Notice that we're off on the wrong foot already because she's quoting mystical monks as if their mystical experiences somehow have anything to tell the Christian church. They don't. I mean, if this is the case, then maybe, Phyllis, you ought to consider, you know, listening to Todd Bentley. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Todd Bentley claims that he speaks to angels, and the angels have been deployed. You know, Patricia King, you should get you, Phyllis. You really need to to hook up with Patricia King and and those guys who are. There. I mean, they're for heaven's sakes, they're out there battling werewolves and vampires. And Patricia King, you know, they've got a mortuary ministry with sending people out into uh, the Arizona mortuaries, uh, trying to raise people from the dead. I mean, they have mystical experiences. Why aren't you listening to her? Anyway, I digress. <clears throat> Let me read it to you. Is it up? Yes. This is what the book of Genesis says. You've read this. I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't heard uh, many times. I'm just going to hopefully rearrange it a little bit. This is the book of Genesis. It says, Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God... Hang on a second here. I, I detect a translational problem here. What is she reading from? That ain't... Uh, you know what? I, yeah, I smell a liberal translation there. Hang on a second here. Genesis chapter 1. What is she reading from? God created him male and female. Humankind. Hmm. Hang on a second here. Male... And let me go back to, hang on a second, doing a little bit of Bible work here. So God created man in his own image. Yeah, that's what I was thinking there. Hang on a second here. Yeah, uh-huh. 
It's Genesis chapter 127, and let me get my Hebrew uh, up next to this. So God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. Yeah, she's reading a weird translation. Let me read to her you her translation and see if you can detect the problem. Uh, it this, yeah, this smells like a feminist. Yep, yeah, this is a feminist, uh, in, feminist modified version of uh, Genesis. Her translation, if you can call it that, says, "God said, let us make humankind in our image.' Hmm, humankind in our image. So God said, let us make humankind in our image." Let me see here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, "Uh uh-huh, okay, Um, uh, let us make man in our image. Let us, uh uh-huh, make Adam in our image. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the man, uh, the birds of the air, and over the livestock, over the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female. He created them. She's reading a passage that says, "Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have." Yeah, this is definitely a bad translation because they're taking the Hebrew word Adam and translating it as humankind. Hmm. We continue. That? How many zillion times have you read that? There are two things that are important here. What's with the let us? You don't say let us. You say let me. This is the beginning of the doctrine of the Trinity. God on the day of creation speaks in the plural. He speaks as to another part of himself and he says, let us make humankind. And then let us make, second point, humankind in our own image, which God did and male and female in the image of God. It's the beginning of our understanding that God is both male and female. God is... Whoa, 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 whoa there. Slow down, Phyllis. God is both male and female? God is both male and female? You're, you pulled that out of the text? That's not in the text. It simply says that God made man in his image, and in his image he created them male and female. It doesn't logically conclude, though, that God is both male and female. you got to be real careful there, Phyllis, because ain't nowhere in the Bible God is revealed as a woman. Let's continue. Oh, wow, this is bad. Is both father and mother. God is both man and woman, if you will, in a sort of divine way. Whew. It's the beginning of... Hold on. Hi-yi-yi. Hey. Oh, man, I need a siren. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Wrong. Wrong. Oh, boy, is this bad. Hang on. Backing it up. Let's hear it in context. Part of himself, and he says, let us make humankind. And then let us make, second point, humankind in our own image, which God did, and male and female in the image of God. 
It's the beginning of our understanding that God is both male and female. God is both father and mother. God is both man and woman, if you will, in a sort of divine way. It's the beginning of our understanding, first of all, that there is more than one thing under the name of God and that it is both male and female. Wow. Nope, that's not what the text teaches, or is that what it says? Uh, uh, Phyllis, uh, evil Knievel, neither evil Knievel or his uh, wicked sister, uh, Phyllis Knievel, could jump that chasm of logic. That is a complete misreading of Genesis chapter 1. Wow. She's, uh, God is apparently male and female. Wow. Now let us talk about that more than one thing. Judaism, when it got to this scripture, as it matured, had a great deal of difficulty trying to figure out what to do with the let us. If you actually read exegesis out of, uh, uh, of Genesis, out of Jewish tradition, you find a lot of racket, a lot of words spilled about what's with the let us. And Judaism began to develop the notion that there were other parts of God that were not immediately the creator and that somehow had a feminine role. The most prominent one, the one we know best, is Sophia. If you read the book of Proverbs, there's that wonderful one. I love the poetry of Proverbs in which this female character, Sophia, a woman, says, I am wisdom. And I was with God, the first of the things God made. And I was with God when he created. Phyllis, just want to point something out to you. If uh, wisdom, by the way, uh, wisdom, that's not the Hebrew word. Sophia is Greek. uh, And uh, funny enough, uh, there was actually a cult that worshipped Sophia. Um, Sorry, I I digress there. But uh, Phyllis, let's, let's just be honest here. You just quoted kind of offhand the fact that wisdom, you know, the, in the poetry of Proverbs, wisdom is given human characteristics, if you would. Anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism, something like that. I think that's what that's called. And it's a poetic device used in um, Proverbs. And if you were to be take it literally wisdom there says that it was the first thing that god created that being the case um we got some problems here hang on a second proverbs i'm gonna go to proverbs 8 up oh, sorry have to do a verse search proverbs 8 does not wisdom call out shachema shachema yeah, it doesn't quite sound as good as Sophia. Shachema. All right. Let me read from Proverbs here. We're going to do a little bit of work. Uh, this uh, the Sophia character, sorry, this Shachema character, that would be the Hebrew word for wisdom, um, which in the Greek is translated as Sophia. Um, so she's doing a little bit of um, verbal sleight of hand because Proverbs was written in Hebrew, was not written in Greek originally. Um we read uh, about this wisdom character. In Proverbs 1, starting in verse 20, we read, Wisdom cries out in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? 
How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I'll pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anger and anguish come upon you, then you will call upon me and I will not answer. Uh, They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way, and they will have their fill in their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So this is wisdom calling out in the streets. This, this anthropomorphic woman of, you know, called wisdom. We read now in Proverbs 8. Wisdom... Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? Now we got two female characters. We got wisdom and understanding. On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in the front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands the and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches are and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth in its field, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above. 
when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So here in Proverbs uh, 8.22, it makes it clear if you were to just follow the logic. This is poetic speech here. Wisdom speaking anthropomorphically. Okay? Calling out to men to, you know, to, to seek her. And in this case, it's a female character. But it says that the Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning of his work, and it was the first of his acts of old. What, if you were to take it literally, what could you conclude? Uh, wisdom was the first thing created by God. Is wisdom God? No, it's not. And so this whole Sophia language that Phyllis is bringing in here, which, by the way, this was written in Hebrew, not in Greek. Sophia is Greek for wisdom. She's taking liberties with the text, and of course she's not really reading to you what it says, because if you would read the thing in context like I just did, then you realize, wait a second, wisdom isn't God. And wisdom isn't here synonymous with the Holy Spirit. In fact, what's funny is is that the Jehovah's Witness try to turn wisdom here, Sophia, into Jesus Christ. Phyllis here is trying to turn wisdom into the Holy Spirit. She's not succeeding, though, by the way. We continue. The earth and the heavens, when he made the seas run and the rivers rise, I was there delighting God, being handmaiden to God. And the Jews said, ah. So the feminine side was there at creation, and we call her wisdom. And that's true, because as we all know... Uh, who's she quoting there? The Jews? And their exegesis? Just want to make sure we understood uh, who she's quoting. She's not quoting the Bible. She's uh, apparently quoting the exegetical prowess of... Anyway. Oh, no. Women have got more of that than men. No. Never mind. Whatever. Anyway. Anyway. Wisdom. And then the Jews also said, and there is a glory to God. There is a wonder to God. There is a gleaming to God that we cannot know. A presence, if you will, that we cannot identify. And you and I think of the Holy Spirit in many ways as the presence of God. And the Jew call that the Shekinah or the Shekinah, which simply means... The ineffable, that which cannot be pronounced, which is God, which is the, the beauty, if you will, of God. And it's also female. They spoke also of Rosh, which is the brow of Nephesh, uh, the, the breath of God. So the Jewish tradition, Jewish faith out of which we came, managed to understand and to convey to all of its members, and still does, that there are, there are, there's a part of God that is deeply feminine and deeply difficult to get at. That's not necessarily Trinitarianism, however. And Trinitarianism is where we have to go next. And the easiest way to go into Trinitarianism, for me anyway, over the years, has been this. There is a thing. There is a thing called H2O. You've never seen H in your life. Okay, now wait a second here. Um, 
so at this point, she's going to give some apologetical defense of the Trinity based on water. <sighs> okay. This is philosophical. We're now outside of the book of God's word into the book of nature. Um, okay. I tell her that she's supposed to preach the word, but she's not even supposed to be up there. Just technicality. You've sure never seen two of them at once. You probably have never seen O, but we speak of H2O all the time. We cannot know H2O other than it there. What we can know is H2O in particular situations and circumstances playing a particular role depending on where we are at the time we engage H2O. It is either ice or it is water or it is steam. Boy, this sounds so spiritual and mystical. Um, and uh, notice this has nothing to do with the Bible. Is either the whole of H2O? No. Is either the exclusive thing about H2O? No. H2O is, in the, is the ineffable. H2O we cannot know. We cannot know God except as a role is played and as our circumstances change. We cannot know H2O? Oh, we cannot know H2O. Whatever. And so we know God the Creator, whom we call Father in the Christian tradition. Or we know God the Redeemer, whom we call Jesus the Christ in our Christian tradition. Or we can know God the Sustainer, whom we call the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, if you will. The steam of the Trinity. That's basic Trinitarian theology. That's basic Christian theology. And now please hear me well on this one, too. All right, listen carefully. You don't want to hear her wrongly. You've got to hear her well. This is going to be a scary point. going to be tough to draw some conclusions because it's shrouded in emergent talk. But here we go. Because I want to be real sure that what I say is, is, is what you hear. In this day and time, and one of the things about increasing globalization and media and information swap, we're hearing more and more about the fact that all religions are the same. Now, listen carefully. Listen carefully, because what's going to be missing at the end of this is a denial that that statement is false. You have to hear it, though. So you got to see how it's avoided. Here we go. That all religions go the same place. That all religions are very alike. That probably they all speak to the same God. And they differ from each other simply because they're in different cultural contexts. There is a degree of truth that says that most religions share a common wisdom. That is to say, we want the same things for humanity. We believe in some of the same moral values. That's absolutely true. But religions differ in their mysteries. And it is the mysteries we must hold to ourselves as Christians. And Religions differ in their mysteries. Now that's a mysterious statement, isn't it? Religions differ in their mysteries. No, Phyllis. Religions differ in truth. They all contradict each other. Therefore, logically, we can say either they are all false, which is one valid logical conclusion, or that only one of them is true. 
the big difference that Christianity has with Islam has nothing to do with their mysteries. It has to do with their very exclusive truth claims. Islam says that there is no God but Allah. Jesus is not God's son. He didn't die on the cross. And that God and that Allah is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not a trinity. He's a singularity. Christianity, according to the Christian scriptures, according to the Judeo-Christian scriptures, we learn that God exists as a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is God the, is God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity, incarnate. And that he died on the cross, and that his and his death on the cross was vicarious, and it was uh, it was penal. It was for our sins. It was it atoned for our sins, and that God died for the sins of the world, and it's calling men to repentance and belief in Him, the one true God. Notice she's saying that the difference between all of them is is that they differ in their mysteries, and that we as Christians need to stick to our mysteries. She's not denying the claim that all religions are true and pray to the same God. She's just trying to affirm Christians and sticking to their mysteries. We continue. Say this is what makes us Christian. And of the two or three defining mysteries that mark us as Christian, one is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or of the Trinity. It's the fact that we are Trinitarian. That we understand God presents to us. And the reason that matters is not to have arguments with your friends about whether one God or many gods or any, none of many religions. It's not about that. The thing that matters is, and please hear me well, we become what we fall down before and worship. And we as Christians worship a trinity. We worship the ineffable H2O whom we engage and who allows who engages us on three different levels. Uh, the question I have for you, Phyllis, is that uh, does this ineffable H2O engage other people in other religions according to different mysteries? It would be really helpful if you would answer that one straight up. And so, where is the beginning of the Trinity doctrine? If indeed the Jewish tradition came along and took the Genesis section we just read and simply proliferated, if you will, a whole lot of feminine in, in, uh, images and gave them names. Where do we come off with the Trinity? Good question. You didn't ask it, but I did. All right. Let us go now to Genesis 18, if you will, Bob. You've read this one too. The scene is uh, the oak trees at Mamrin, or Mamre. Uh, those of you who've been to the Holy Land know that what, Mam- what is called Mamre here, uh, actually we call now Hebron. Uh, it's just to the east and slightly to the south of Jerusalem. You can go to Hebron now and still see the graves of Abraham and Sarah, uh, where they purportedly are buried. And uh, when the story opens, Isaac is not born yet, and God is about to tell Sarah that she's going to conceive a child who will be Isaac, out of whom uh, there will come salvation to God's people and the world will be blessed. And so Abraham is sitting out in front of his tent one day in Mamre where he's encamped and this happened. The Lord appeared to Abram, Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them he ran from the tent's entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground and he said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the trees. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. 
So they said, do as you have said. What's important about that? Well, clearly there are three people present, right? It says three men. And note how the section opens. The Lord. Unity. The Lord appeared. And note how Abraham addresses the three of them. My Lord. Not the Lord's. My Lord. Again, not a very good close reading of the text there because two of them end up going to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, what do we learn about them? Oh, that they were angels. One of them, Abram talks to and refers to him as the Lord. Not a good reading of scripture here, Phyllis. And Christian theology teaches that this is the beginning of our understanding of the Trinity. Now, I spoke a minute ago of of my work in, I suppose, church history, and in the period of, of 500, the cycling of 500 years of change. When Christianity began, when the day of Pentecost came, when the Spirit came down and they began to speak ecstatically and they also spoke in known tongues... And they went from that room. Uh, Phyllis, again, read uh, Acts chapter 2 in context. Nobody was babbling. Everybody was speaking in a known language. They were given the gift of languages. Nobody was just babbling ecstatically in Acts chapter 2. It doesn't exist. As speakers of Greek or speakers of Latin or speakers of Syriac language or some variants thereof. There were three grand divisions. And when we went from that room, they spoke those languages, those three languages or those three variants of those three languages. And so by the first century, the end of the first century, we get the beginning of what is called Syriac Christianity. Orthodox or Greek Christianity and Latin or Western Christianity. Most of you and uh, most of you and I certainly am a product of Western Christianity or of Latin. Those divisions were based on the language out of which the Scripture was written. I want to keep keep you keep in mind. This is a lecture sermon, whatever, on apparently the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit. We're now outside of the Bible into a completely different realm in in discovering the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit. By the way, if the Holy Spirit was so feminine, why aren't you just listing off all of the feminine passages, you know, the passages that discuss the Holy Spirit as female? Could it be that they don't exist? Just a point. Yeah, I think that's the problem here. She's not running us to the Bible in all of the feminine passages of the Holy Spirit because they're not there. In fact, what's really funny, she's going to get to John chapter 14 later here and um, and quote that as somehow proving it's that the Holy Spirit is feminine. Unfortunately, that blows up in her face as soon as you read it in context, but we'll get there. I just want to give you something to look forward to. And the language in which people heard it, whether you were Far Eastern and you heard it in Syriac, whether you were Middle Europe, uh, Middle Eastern and you heard it in Greek, or whether you were Western and you heard it in Latin, you heard it in the language which was nearest to the one you spoke. And so those three grand divisions happened. Syriac Christianity, and what we now call Orthodox Christianity, or Greek if you will, began to develop a different understanding about the Holy Spirit than that which we developed in the West. Uh, Wait a second. The Orthodox Church, Syriac Christianity, began to develop a different idea of the Holy Spirit? 
When did uh, the Syriac Christians or Orthodox Christians' views uh, become binding upon us, or when did they receive an extra set of biblical revelation that we're not privy to? Because if we're going to make any conclusions about God, the Holy Spirit, then that has to come through either the Torah, the prophets, or the uh, writings of the apostles. Hmm. Notice where this is developing. It's developing in a, with a group, and we not mm-hmm, not in the Bible. By the time you get to 1405, you get a very clear understanding in Syriac or Oriental or Coptic or Egyptian, whatever you want to call it, Christianity, and in Greek Christianity, whether you call it Russian Orthodox or or Greek Orthodox or Antiochian Orthodox, it doesn't matter. You've got a much different understanding of the Holy Spirit, and it's based on what happened at the oak trees of Mamre. I want Bob to put up, if he will, something that will be very familiar to you. An icon is used in Orthodox and Syriac Christianity. Yeah, you, you, that's right. She's going to have an icon put on the screen, uh, an, uh, an Orthodox icon. Because we all know that Orthodox icons are actually part of Scripture. Mm-hmm. As a what? It's a text. It is to be read. It is not a picture to look at. It is a text to be read as surely as you read the book of Genesis. So this, uh, this icon that we're looking at here, Phyllis, you're saying that it's a text that's supposed to be read. Um, is it a biblical text? Was it inspired by the Holy Spirit? Should it be part of our Bible? Why is it that you are pointing us to a text then outside of Scripture as somehow authoritative regarding how we should understand the one true God. Notice what she's done here. She's equated this icon with a, quote, inspired text. Let me back it up just a couple of sentences so that, you know, seconds so that you can kind of catch it. Here we go again. An icon is used in Orthodox and Syriac Christianity as a what? It's a text. It is to be read. It is not a picture to look at. It is a text to be read. As surely as you read the book of Genesis, as surely as you read chapter 18 and see what happened at the oak trees of Mamre, this originally, it's now called the Trinity. It originally, when a man named Andrea Lufoff, this is the most famous icon, by the way, uh, in Christian history. And most of you, one of the things about the Great Emergence is that the divisions between East and West are slowly coming together. And this morning after 9 o'clock, I was so interested to hear so many of, that, uh, of those congregants who had some awareness of Eastern Christianity, one of whom was even wearing a shirt with the patriarch uh, on, on the front, uh, and were aware that one of the things as we go into this great emergence is the coming together and the coming back to what original Christianity taught. And so... Uh, you're claiming that emergence Christianity is taking us back to what original Christianity taught? Then how come it doesn't sound or look or any feel anything like original Christianity? By the way, I'll put a link up to this particular icon if you would like to know what it looks like um, at fightingforthefaith.com. You'll, it'll be there for you to uh, a link where you can view it. So, and also the coming in of icons. This icon now originally had Abraham and Sarah in it. Ultimately, before he finished it, he took Abraham and Sarah out. 
But this is the three who came and met with Abraham. This is the Lord at the tables in front of Mamre. I can't do it backwards necessarily, but if you will look, if you will look over here far to your right, uh, far to your left, I'm sorry, far to your left, what you see is God the Creator. If you look in the middle, what you see is God the Redeemer. And if you look far to the right, you see God the Sustainer. They are sitting outside of Abraham's tent in Hebron. And you will notice, first of all, that each has a staff in his hand and each is winged. Leading immediately to the question, why would anybody with wings need a walking stick? Um, you know, <laughs> even God's more sensible than that. Notice she's exegeting an icon. Surely. Uh, the, and, and it's because, of course, we no longer regard a stick as, a, a, as something you hit other people with or as a sign of authority. Uh, back then, it wasn't a walking stick. It is a sign of their authority. Likewise, each has on blue some part of its, if you will allow me that rhetoric, that neuter uh, pronoun, of its clothing has some blue in it. You will notice that the figure God the Creator over to the left has very little blue showing because he's covered in the Shekinah or the Shekinah. The gold there, which no longer glistens as it did five, six hundred years ago, the gold there is the shimmering presence of God the Creator. So very little blue is shown. You will notice also he's not touching the table in any way. When you go to the middle and you see God the Redeemer, notice several things. Notice, first of all, there's a gold stripe over his shoulder. The gold stripe proves his kingship. It's there as a sign of his kingship. Also, you'll notice he too has blue, but his other garment is brown, indicating that he is of the earth. Uh, dust we are, to dust we shall return. We are... uh, keep in mind, this was also a uh, sermon, lecture, whatever, teaching delivered at Mars Hill Church, Rob Bell's establishment. Those of you who think that Bell is... Uh, Somehow, uh, you're just your ordinary garden variety, misunderstood evangelical. What is he doing having this woman teaching at his church and teaching this stuff? Just a question. They're scooped up out of the earth, and so he wears brown, an indication of that. Notice also that he has two fingers on the table. Those two fingers are there to signal you that he is of double nature, fully man and fully God. Uh, fully God. And so thus the two fingers. Uh, you, you will notice uh, also that in front of him there's a bowl, a chalice. Very shortly, when I quit, if I ever quit, uh, we will come to this table uh, and we will drink from that chalice. Uh, and that is the chalice uh, of his death. But if you go all the way over here, you see God the sustainer, which rhetoric I like so much better. And here you see that the sustainer has his or her or its hands fully on the table of life, fully there, fully present, and is dressed in green, the color of life. For we will come to understand that the most feminine part of the Holy Spirit is that it is the giver of life. And we will so declare in our, in our creeds, the giver of life. And thus the green is there. If you look behind them, behind God the uh, Creator, you will see the temple, uh, or what was supposed to suggest the temple. If you look behind God the Redeemer, you will see a tree. It, uh, it is an oak tree, and it was part of the, of the oak trees of Mamre that he left in when he took Abraham and Sarah out. It also is said to represent the tree on which he will be crucified. And then on beyond, you will see a mountain behind God, uh, the sustainer. It is Sinai. 
Uh, it is Sinai and all the mountains after that. Hermon and Tabor and Calvary. All the mountains in which God has spoken through human history. That's how our Orthodox brothers and sisters, that's how two-thirds of Christianity understands the Trinity. And it, I offer it to you as a kind of, if you will, introduction to what we're going to do next. Because what we're going to do next is we're going to look at something called the Nicene Creed. Uh, and uh, you all say it from time to time. This is the creed almost. Almost. Okay, I can't read backwards. So. All right, she's now going to be quoting the Nicene Creed, a creed which I confess regularly in church. I don't have a problem with the Nicene Creed, but uh, she's going to kind of pick apart. Um, uh, she's going to basically make a decision regarding a dispute that centers on part of the Nicene Creed. But then again, just a question for you. The Nicene Creed is only so good insofar as it correctly tells us what the scriptures teach, right? Why is she interpreting icons and interpreting the creed rather than interpreting the scriptures for us? See, there's a big difference, big difference. This is the creed. Is it up there? Yes. Uh, that was more or less like the one that the early church adopted. It's the, it's the more that bothers you here. All right, will you say it with me together? Affirm your faith. And as you say it, instead of just reading a screen for the sake of reading a screen, be aware that thousands and thousands and thousands of our forebears in the faith have died in order that we might have the privilege of sitting here calmly, happily, comfortably, and reading off the screen a bunch of words. They are not words. This, this, this is our faith. This is, amen, amen, and may we never forget it. And so, reverently, together, may we read the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory, to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And here it comes. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church 
I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That creed has been said in the West since about 600, maybe even 500. That creed is not the one that's said in the rest of the Christian world. One of the things that tripped the great, transform, the, the great decline and fall in the 6th century and the breaking point in the great schism of the 11th century was a section of that creed. Can you show us just that fourth paragraph, Bob, and see if we can show the difference? There it is. Read it and see if you know what you've done here differently. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, watch it, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together. See it? What's gone? Is it gone? Look at it. Is it still up there? Oh, come on, Bob. You can... <laughs> uh, uh, there it is. Okay, here it is. See it? And from the Son is gone. It's called because we're Latin speakers, because, or we were originally because we're Latin Christianity, it's called the filioque. Que, Q-U-E, is the Latin word for and, or one of the Latin words for and, and filio means from the Son. Filioque, that phrase, and from the Son. And it makes all the difference in the world in how we see the Holy Spirit. Because what originally you're saying is that here is God the Father, and here is, as, as the Lukov uh, icon shows, and here is the Son, and here is the Sustainer. Now what we have done is we have said that God the Father and God the Son are here, and the Spirit comes out of them. We have diminished, and it was the first, one of the major errors the West made. For what it's worth, and the reason it's worth talking to you about this morning, is the fact that the filioque is now being removed bit by bit from Latin services, from Protestant services, from services all over the West because we realize the error. Because what we did, where originally we had a triangle like this, then suddenly we got an upside-down triangle and we got God the Father and God the Son and sort of dwindling out after them came God the Spirit. And what that did in the West was it diminished the role of the Spirit. And it wasn't long, and I challenge you to be honest with yourselves, it wasn't long before it became God the Father gave rise to God the Son who gave rise to God the Holy Spirit. Okay, just got to stop for a second. This little history lesson on the filioque, um, Phyllis, that's all great and everything, but how does that again prove the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit? Just a question, because it doesn't. It's a fine and dandy little historical bunny trail. But it doesn't prove anything about the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit, nor does exegeting the meaning of an icon from the East. We continue. A kind of totem pole or hierarchy in which the Spirit mattered less than did the other two. And if you're honest, there have been some parts of your life when you so configured, when you so thought, when you honestly thought that maybe it was like this instead of like Ruvloff's wonderful notion of how it was at Mamre. 
And so, in a strange way, part of the feminine part of the Holy Spirit in the West became the unfortunate part of it. That is, it was less than. It wasn't as powerful as the male was. It wasn't as powerful as the father and the son were. It was kind of less. And that's the reason, quietly, church after church, large body after large, the Church of Canada has just removed the filioque from all Canadian services. The Vatican has now removed it from those services that occur in, in, in places where there is any exposure to Greek orthodoxy or any kind of cultural context with, with the Greek situation. Gradually, we're getting back to what is, is that wonderful trinity of Rublov. And so it is. And so it is that we come then to a trinity that is now, increasingly, what it was at Mamre. All three parts of the Godhead. And what part of it is feminine and what part of it is not? Well, certainly the wisdom, certainly the glory, certainly the beauty. We already dealt with the wisdom part and now you're sticking in other things as somehow being feminine? And, uh, and where are you finding this in the text of the Bible? But also Judaism had, and the early church had, a part of the spirit that was feminine that we lost. And I want to show you this one just briefly. Can you put the back qual up? If you go home and Google her, used to be before Google, you could get up here and pontificate all the time and not, you know, give a whole lot of caveats. Now every fool in the place goes and Googles to see if you knew what you were talking about, which is really unfortunate. So if you Google... Listen carefully to this argument because, again, she's not telling us what the Bible says because if you really want anything definitive about the nature of the Holy Spirit, the one and only place that you are to find it is in God's Word. It really cramps your style. If you Google, you may find her called the Bat Call, K-O-L. She spelled both ways. She drops out of Christian heritage. She's coming back, interestingly enough. I've been fascinated that emergence Christianity is beginning to talk about her again. The Bat Qual is the daughter of the voice of God. Judaism says, although it's... Okay, the Bat Call is the daughter of the voice of God. Phyllis... Real simple. I don't care what the emergents are talking about. Where is the bat call found in the Bible? Beginning to doubt it a little bit. The Judaism traditionally, up until fairly recently, held that after the death of the prophets. Judaism held this? Uh, Judaism held this. Judaism held this. Where is it in the Bible again, the bat call? The great prophets and the minor prophets. After the death of Malachi, God withdrew his voice. The voice of God is a feminine thing. Withdrew his... Uh, the voice of God is a feminine thing. Mm-hmm. His voice, one of the feminine things about the spirit in, in Judaism, simply because the people had sinned so much that he was offended with them. And so instead of speaking to them through human form, instead of speaking to them through uh, prophets and through ecstatic uh, worshipers, he chose instead just simply to withdraw and allowed them to become wise. And so wisdom became the substitute for God's voice, for direct inspiration. And where is this found in the Bible again? Or is this just somebody's Judaistic theory? 
And it is said in Jewish thinking that the voice of God was mournful for people and loved us much, loved us as a lover loves. And because there was such love, the voice of God sent her daughter, the bat qual. And the bat qual... Uh, the voice of God sent her daughter, the bat qual. Could you, um, again, this is just obviously wonderful spiritualism, um, and maybe spiritism or Judas, Judaistic mysticism, but is this found in the Bible anywhere? I don't recall ever seeing anything about the voice of God sending her daughter, the bat call, to do anything. All came to speak with men, and they didn't, all, they didn't ever see anybody. There was no prophet making the words. They would hear the words behind them, or they would hear the words over them, but the bat call would be speaking the words of God, for the voice of God loved us and wished us still to know. If you've ever read in the Gospel of John, and I am so encouraged that I find more and more young Christians who will point to that verse and say, I don't understand this verse. There's a verse in there in which... Oh, I hope they're not going to you to explain it because you'll tell them a lie. Uh, Jesus says to them, and after I am gone, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And St. John says in that verse, For the Spirit had not yet come upon them, for Christ had not yet. Some of you are saying yes. And you wonder, so the Spirit is not yet here? The Spirit hasn't been here since we buried old Malachi. Not that we cared a lot about him. But uh, we're, we're waiting for Pentecost? Okay, I can live with that. If you'll tell me who spoke when Christ came out of the River Jordan. What was the voice at the baptism that said... Oh, let's see. That would be the voice of the Father. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Read the text. It's not that hard to figure it out, Phyllis. This is my beloved Son. Who spoke at the Mount of Transfiguration to the Apostles? Who... Uh, that would be uh, God the Father again. Who said then? By the way, that, these are great questions to ask in a Bible trivial pursuit game. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Who was that? Christ the father. Christianity taught. It's the bat qual. No, 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 no. Christianity did not teach that it was the bat call. That is the, mm, the text says it's the voice of the father. Christianity taught that it's the bat call. It's this feminine daughter of the voice of God. No, 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 no. And even if a, a kooky church father quoted that and said that, he's wrong because it's not what the text says. Oh, my goodness. Boy, we're taking some big leaps here, Phyllis, don't you think? It's the voice, uh, the daughter of the voice of God still speaking to, to them because it is not until Pentecost that we receive the Spirit. And at Pentecost, which comes on the 31st of this month, at Pentecost, the great gift of Pentecost is no more need for the back call. No more need for wisdom per se. No more need for the Shekinah. No more need for all of those things. Oh, man. I will bet you 50 bucks, someone, one person, whoever, 
Whoever wants to take me up on one person, I'll bet you 50 bucks that Rob Bell will not correct her false doctrine, won't correct her false teaching. This is blatantly bad doctrine. This is not Christianity, and what she's saying is a lie. 50 bucks. It's the first person to email me taking me up on the offer. If he corrects, publicly rebukes what she said, uh, then... um, and then you owe me 50 bucks. Wait a second. Hang on a second. No, if he publicly rebukes, he won't. <laughs> I'm saying he's he's not. So if he does, I'll pay you 50 bucks. And if he doesn't, then you owe me 50 bucks. Anyone want to take, take, take me up on that bet? I don't think so. Because the spirit now is among us actively. The Spirit comes in for the first time. And we don't have to be prophets. We can be just Jane and and Joe public. We just have to be believers. And it is the Spirit that comes. And then it is the Spirit that is indeed the giver of life. Now, I want want to read um, the next slide here. As we talk about... If we will look at what John 14, which is our appointed scripture for today. See, 40 minutes into it, I'm going to now get around to the appointed scripture. Now, this is going to be fun because uh, we're going to read John 14 in context. And it's going to... uh, Funny that she's going to be pointing us to John 14 because there's a section of John 14 that's going to utterly decimate, decimate this whole feminine part of the Holy Spirit thing that she's been trying to construct using toothpicks, band-aids, and outside sources uh, from the Bible and the bat call. Nowhere found in Scripture. But wait till we get to John 14. This is going to be fun. I've got the the C4 charges laid. This will be fun to explode. All right. Uh, Thus it is always. I'm a failed academic, and I think in 55-minute sound bites. So, you know, uh, you'll get to suffer. Don't worry about it. This is our appointed uh, scripture. And I want to read the very last paragraph of it. Uh, Jesus uh, answered him. He's answering Judas. Are you to that one? You may have to flip a slide. I'm jumping a two or three. Jesus answered him, speaking to Judas. Those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them. And get this. And we will come to them and make our home with them. The most feminine, the absolute most feminine of gestures. And it is the mother who makes the home. Bye. No, 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 no. Just a simple little bit of work here in the Greek. All right. By the way, let me let me correct what she just messed up. All right. We're going to read. Um, you know what? I'm going to read this in context right now. It's time to... Uh, I've got the C4 set. Let's do a little explosive work here. Okay. Um, here we go. Are you ready? Backing it up. John chapter 14, starting at verse 8. Context, context, context. We read, Philip said to him, that's the Lord, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you, not be- do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. Okay, and this is, by the way, the Greek word here for the helper is parakletos. And contrary to what Phyllis is going to tell you, I will help you out here. Parakletos, by the way, hang on a second here, verse 16, I had to open up my Greek Bible. Here we go, parakletos. Noun, masculine singular. The the word parakletos means it's a helper, means somebody comes alongside. It is a masculine noun. But let me see. Uh, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Pay attention to the pronouns again. Here we go again. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you. That's right. He dwells with you and will be with you. Let me just just for the sake of being completely obnoxious. Let me read that again. He it, it because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you talking about the Holy Spirit. Him, 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 he. Where's the feminine part there again of the parakletos? Non-existent. We continue. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more and you will see and you will... But you will see me because I live. You will also live in that day. You will know that I am in the father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas Iscariot, not Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and, and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep or guard my word. And my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Now, hang on a second before she's at this point reading verse 23 here in John 14 and saying, and we will make our home with him as somehow that's a see God is a homemaker. Ugh, man, it, you know, it's, it's, you can't write this stuff. It's just so bad. Hang on. Home is Monain. Hang on a second here. State of remaining in an area, staying Terry, a place in which one stays, a dwelling or a room or an abode. Um, it's like, okay, so basically at this point, it's not saying that it, it, she's reading it as homemaker. No. The Greek word uh, Monain uh, there, or Monain, will live with you. It's not, we're not going to pick out curtains. It's not God is saying we're going to pick out curtains and we're going to go pick out a china pattern uh, down at the local uh, store and people are, that's not what it's saying. It's just basically saying he's going to dwell with us. Okay, read the end of, the, of Revelation 
God makes his dwelling place with man. Anyway, we continue because it gets worse. By and large, usually, we will make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. And I will, I will say these things to you while I was still with you. But the advocate, and the Greek word is parakletos. It is not a noun. It therefore... Uh, yes, it is. It's a masculine noun. It, yeah, it is. ...does not even have grammatical gender, theoretically. Uh, no, what are you talking about here? Um, I'm looking at parakletos right here in the Greek... Uh, yeah, it's got a, a masculine ending to it. Um, so um, you want to explain that? Oh, man, this is just ridiculous. Right here, my accords you know, can parse these things for me just by me hovering over it. Says that, you know, his 16, parakletos, noun, masculine, singular. It's in the accusative case here. Parakletos, toss is a masculine ending for a noun. What are you talking about, Phyllis? You are lying to these people. Uh, would the Greek scholars over at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church be willing to submit a paper to Fighting for the Faith explaining how the Greek word, Greek word parakletos is neither a noun nor is it masculine? Could anyone there, would be anyone willing to uh, be willing to uh, take that on? Send us your best Greek explanation on how this is completely not even... It's ridiculous. We continue. It actually does if you're looking, but but it does, it is it is a verbal. It means that which goes along beside. We speak of parallel lines. Those are lines that go beside. Paracletus, that which goes beside... Cletus go. Pedicle, that which goes beside us. That which, like a mother, holds our hands. Uh, you're reading that into the text. It doesn't say anything about mothers holding our hands. That which speaks. Do you know, do you remember Rudyard Kipling's uh, famous poem uh, in, from high school? If I were hanged on the highest hill, mother of mine, oh mother of mine, I know whose love would reach me still, mother of mine, oh mother of mine. If I were drowned in the deepest sea, mother of mine, oh mother of mine, I know whose love would come down to me, mother of mine, oh mother of mine. If I were damned in body and soul, mother of mine, oh mother of mine. Yeah, because Kipling is... um... He's one of the inspired biblical authors, right? I know whose prayers would make me whole, mother of mine, oh mother of mine. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the paraclete. No, he's not talking about, oh mother of mine, oh mother of mine. Uh, by the way, when the Holy when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and unbelief. Read the text. This is the side of God who loved us and who made us and who continues to sustain us. The word paraclete is used five times in the New Testament and only in the New Testament. Uh, And it is used only by John. Four of them are in the scripture you have been studying from this chapter in John the 14th. The last one occurs in the first letter of St. John uh, in the second chapter, if you'll put that up. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
For if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a paracletus with the Father. There is the word again. Yeah, so Jesus Christ is our mother? Again, you, d- you don't know Greek. It's obvious you have not studied this language. Again, Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, which takes us back to H2O, because here John is saying paraclete. That's right. Take us all the way back to H2O, because this entire sermon lecture, whatever it is, is all wet. The same concept that makes home, the same concept, the same word, the same understanding of God who advocates for us is also found in the Redeemer. And so we are back to H2O. It is ineffable that we cannot know, and we know it in different circumstances according to our circumstances and in different roles according to what the H2O is doing and how it's presenting to us. And so what we have, what we have is a precious treasure, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. The treasure of Trinitarian understanding, of a mystery we cannot possibly understand, but before which we fall. I wouldn't fall to any of this mystery that you've laid out because you haven't laid out a biblical case here. You've laid out anything but a biblical case, and you've mishandled God's word. You've exegeted an icon, uh, told us about an argument about the Nicene Creed, and then told us lies about the word parakletos. Yeah, it's a mystery, all right. The big mystery is how on earth can you honestly stand in front of these people and claim that you're teaching Christian doctrine? And of a God who is not a patriarchal God, who is not some kind of war God or storm God or some kind of loud noise God. Not a patriarchal God? Father, Son. Huh. But a God who from the very beginning said my image, male and female, our image, male and female. And who from Pentecost on, as the bat qual was no longer needed. Yeah, that whole bat qual thing, yeah, that's uh, not in the Bible either. Who from Pentecost on came and entered us, came into us, lives in us, and we are the container thereof. And it is, the mo- it is an erotic relationship what? What? It's a what? An erotic relationship? And that too is part of the feminine nature of it. It is an erotic relationship and the most intimate one that a Christian or a human being can ever have. And I think that was best expressed, or at least for me, by St. Augustine. My head spinning. Uh, by the way, she's going to try to quote St. Augustine. Augustine did not teach that we have an erotic relationship with God. And this little quote from his confessions that uses the word beauty does not prove your point. And by the way, Augustine was a church father, and he's to be judged according to Scripture. Wow. Augustine, in about 410 uh, of the Common Era, at that time, the whole definition of the, of the Holy Spirit was up for, def- for, for redefinition. It was the first time that they were really struggling with how you define Holy Spirit and how feminine it is. And, and St. Augustine... What, 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 the arguments regarding the doctrine of the Trinity had nothing to do with whether or not God was feminine. Are you familiar with the whole Arian heresy controversy there, uh, Phyllis? 
the Arian heresy had nothing to do with the, quote, femininity of God. Arius denied that Jesus Christ was God eternal, and he claimed that Jesus was a created creature of God the Father. Arius taught the same heresy that the Jehovah's Witnesses are teaching today. This had nothing to do with femininity. You just shoved that in there. That was a lie. Then came late to Christ. Uh, he had lived for many years with a mistress, had a son, an illegitimate son by her, uh, and had been a bit of a ne'er-do-well. And through his mother's deep praying and constant praying, he was converted to Christianity and became one of the great saints of the Christian faith. And in his maturity, he wrote a thing called the Confessions of St. Augustine. And here's what he has to say about the thing we've been talking about. Because beauty ultimately is the most characteristic of all feminine characteristics. Uh, Phyllis, just because he uses the word beauty does not mean that he's talking about God as being feminine. You're shoving that into Augustine's theology. It's not there. And this is what Augustine said. Late have I loved you. Oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside. It was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things that you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you. Yet if they had not been in you, they would not have been at all. You called. You shouted and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst more for you. You touched me and I burn for your peace. Uh, that was not an erotic love letter that... Uh, Augustine wrote to God. Notice the psalm language in there, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Yeah, the, he... It, oh, man. That's the love affair we're invited to. I'm not interested in having a love affair with a female God. Sorry, because that God doesn't exist. It's the love affair we have to keep. And in many ways, when we come to the table, we're about to come to. Okay, this is where it gets creepy. She's, I'm not sure. We have to listen carefully. Is she presiding at communion? Listen carefully. What we are doing. On the night before he was betrayed, he took bread. And he broke it and gave it to them. Yeah, this sounds, if, if uh, wow, this was at our church, this would be the part where the consecration of the elements is occurring. Uh, wow. And said, this is my body broken for you. And afterward he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of salvation, the cup of the new covenant. It is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. Take this in remembrance of me. And so we can, as often as you do it, you shall drink the Lord's death until he come again. As we're about to do that, let us remember what we're doing. We not only celebrate that death and that promise of return, but we are feeding by eating God, which is what we're doing here, 
By eating the body and blood of our God, we are feeding the God within us. For as we take... We're what? We're feeding the God within us? We're feeding the God within us? Anyone, um, any, anyone out there um, uh, have any problems whatsoever with anything that you just heard? Oh boy, I get the feeling I'm going to have to make a, a, a museum exhibit or two from this one. Wow. Take those elements. The spirit also feeds within us and is reinvigorated as he or she or it is by our faith. May we go forth in holiness and approach this table in fear and trembling and in great rejoicing. Run! Get out of there! Run before God destroys that place! This is a, a heretical abomination. The, oh my goodness. Any, why is Rob Bell allowing this false teaching to be propagated and taught in his church? Does he agree with this? I wouldn't invite anyone to speak at our church if uh, I didn't agree with them. Folks, we must now, like Moses, fall on our face before God and pray in fear and trembling for the people at Mars Hill. They are being led astray by false doctrine, by false teaching. And what this woman said is from the pit of hell. It's not from the scriptures. It's not of God. It is not edifying. If this is the type of stuff that sends people into the fires of hell. And we must, in love and fear, pray for them that God would open their eyes to their error and cause them to repent of this sin, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins from Jesus Christ. This is not Christianity. This is something completely different. Well, sadly, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you. This radio outreach... We teach you to think biblically, teach you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And God is using this radio outreach to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of the forgiveness of sins. And to give people a reason for the hope that lies within them and how to defend their Christian faith in these days when deceit and false doctrine is running rampant. You can partner with us by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Uh, by clicking on that, it makes it possible for you to make a secure online gift to Fighting for the Faith. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Wow. Wow. Wow, was that awful. Pray for the people at Mars Hill. Pray for them. This is deadly, serious stuff. If you would like to send me an email, 
You can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. My name there is Chris Rosebro. Or you can follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God bless you. <laughs>